Hi, everybody. Welcome. The future of radio is when, guys? Yeah. Woo! <laughs> uh, welcome to... Oops. I, I have a very loud voice. How's that? <laughs> welcome to the future of radio is now. As I think you guys know, these... Many of you guys are in the audience, but all of you young people and you young people are making some of the greatest radio that's out there, and I think it's groundbreaking and format-breaking and exciting, and this is going to be a chance for us to hear and share your work and your experiences as radio makers. So I just want to introduce the panel. To my right over here, we have um, Quincy Mosby from Youth Radio, which is Youth Radio is sort of our parent radio program, the one that was there before all the rest of us. Uh, I said to Ellen yesterday, she's like, she's like our mom. <laughs> but, um, and they're based in Berkeley, California. Next to Quince, go Berkeley. <laughs> Next to Quincy is Elvia Bautista. And Elvia is from Voice of Youth. And Voice of Youth is a pretty new program uh, in this last year or two based in Sonoma County. And as you guys will hear later, they're, they're producing really amazing different stuff. So I'm excited for you to hear that. And next to Elvia is Emily LaFond from Blunt in Maine. Go Maine. <laughs> and next to Emily is Rocky Taya from Radio Rookies, and that's where I'm from too, from WNYC in New York. So before we get started, we're going to start right away by just playing uh, track one. And uh, Quincy, do you want to introduce that first and tell us a little about the background? A friend of mine was harassed by the police while he was, uh, with, well, two of them uh, were harassed by the police while they were in Berkeley on their way to a meeting, uh, a staff meeting on Youth Radio. And like what what basically happened was it was like you know they uh, the police officer made a mistake and he didn't he didn't, he didn't check the the car right or whatever and it came up stolen and uh, he like pulled out a gun on him and everything and it was like you know so basically like from there uh, at Youth Radio we sort of we sort of try to take the negative and uh, turn it to a positive so he like you know decided to put all his energy into like making this story and getting like his his um, anger about the whole situation out through any way he could and this was one of the ways that he did it and yeah I think like the the thing that's powerful about this piece isn't that like you know that it's unique because it's really not a unique situation this happens like all the time in Oakland and Berkeley and all these other places that I've probably never been you know I'm sure it's like in Chicago and in New York all these places and the fact is just that even though you know, this does happen all the time. It's still, it's still not a resolved situation. Do you want to just say who the author is? Oh man. You know okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anya. <laughs> yeah, this uh, Anya. You know. Um, the folks at Youth Radio told me that Anya is six five and has braids, and so he gets stopped by the police all the time. So this is. The first time I fit the description of a suspect, I was ten. A cop wanted to know if I had been with my uncle all day. The kid he was looking for was 12, but I was his size, according to the officer who drove off, but not before repeating. Are you sure he's been with you all day? My uncle told me, you're going to fit a lot more descriptions when you get older. And the more I was stopped for conversations with police, the more I began to make adjustments in my life. I had to learn not to stand outside the house with nondescript cups, 
or ride four deep to the club. Some of my friends like to keep all the registration papers in their glove box ultra updated. Others get nervous about how many people in their back seats are wearing ball caps. For as long as the term racial profiling has been around, fools have been denying the phenomenon exists. But I contend every black man in America, at some point, will be racially profiled or harassed by the police. It's a part of the DNA of our experience in the United States. Red, white, and blue lights blaze the sky like it's the fourth day of July. But it's not the fourth day of July, it's a Friday night in the winter. Oh, firecrackers, these crackers fire at niggas. Born black and your birthright is the fear of what the boys in black and blue do. You ain't even got to know what happened in the past and know what might happen to you. One morning last spring, while I was parking my car at the BART train station, a police officer looked at me and ran my license plate. He entered a false number in my Oldsmobile Royal Brougham 88 came back as a stolen Honda. So now I'm a car thief. My friend Elmer and I weren't prepared for what happened next. Our conversation was interrupted very rudely and abruptly. I mean, just how did what happen? In the distant background, I hear a voice of a police officer saying, everybody move aside. And I turn around to see the barrel of this officer's handgun staring me down face to face. And he tells me to step back and stand on the concrete. Innately inserted into the black subconscious are three kings. You got Martin King, Don King, and Rodney King. One spoke of the American dream, one lived the American dream, and the other got put to sleep and thus had the American nightmare. He said, you know, brothers like you, I know how y'all get down. Y'all be in the streets, y'all steal cars. He's like, you know, he's not talking to us like, you know, like citizens. You know, he's talking to us like we're convicted criminals that he's delivering to Massachusetts for multiple murders. The BART police officer realized his mistake on the triple check, and after embarrassing himself, he let us go. That wasn't the first time a police officer came at me sideways, but I was floored by the reality that an officer's simple mistake was enough for him to approach me at gunpoint. And out of the night, sirens blare, lights flare up, I'm scared but doubly terrified since realizing not everybody is as scared as I some people's fears a whole lot more subtle. Oh my God, my parents are gonna kill me. Forget that. I'm worrying about this cop saving my parents that trouble. The situation is so bad. I know brothers who are putting magnets and stickers on their cars that read, support our troops, because they think displays of patriotism will stop them from getting profiled. That strategy would only work if you could slap a Caucasian bumper sticker on your black self. But please believe when I got my new car, I went to the auto parts store and bought a case of oil, transmission fluid, and a couple of American flags. You know, just to keep my car running. I don't want to dishonor them all because they are good ones I shouldn't blame. But I can't help but view cops the same way some cops view blacks. And therefore... Them fools all look the same. I can't tell the difference. Good cop, bad cop, that one, this one. All I think is black man trying to hit up the club, policeman trying to hit me with one. When you go from being a black boy to a black man, you start to understand police will use deadly force on you. I could sneeze and get shot to death. I feel like I'm living in a bottle, constantly under pressure. While I understand that this is a dangerous world, I wouldn't call the police if I got robbed and beat. I don't trust them. They don't serve me, and I know they won't protect me. 
In fact, I'm the one to be protected from. I've been handcuffed and let go several times, and the next time police harassment happens to me, I'm demanding a certificate of release. It means that I have a piece of paper in my hand proving what happened, more than just another story to add to my experiences with out-of-pocket police. For Youth Radio, I'm King Anya Howell. That, that piece is called DNA of the Black Experience, and it aired locally, and uh, that hopefully is going to air nationally as well at some point. What a voice he has. Wow. <laughs> so um, do you want to tell us, Quincy, because uh, the folks at Youth Radio have had a lot of experiences, as you said, with um, police harassment. Ellen told me that now what they do is when they get stopped, they say, I'm with Youth Radio. And a lot of the time, you know, the cops then leave them alone. So they've realized that this is one way to stop the harassment, but it's still a really traumatic experience for them. So what are some of the other things besides the radio stories that you guys have been working on to try to make this change in your community? Uh, well, um, I, I know that, uh, like, we, 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 like, had, like, uh, tried to have, like, a meeting with, like, the chief of police and a bunch of uh, police officers or whatever, and they came down and, every, and everything like that, And but it was just, like, yeah, we had, like, a lot of problems, like, I believe, like, three three youth radio uh, staff members or, or people, participants would have, like, had run-ins just, like, this summer. So it was, like, yeah, so we tried to, like, have a forum or set up some kind of dialogue with them. My name's Karime Blanco, I'm from Youth Radio. But I went to the forum and it was really odd because the policemen were there, standing there talking about how um, this is a great opportunity to open dialogue to do this and this and all that. But when you would bring up an issue, they would talk at really convenient times, you know? You'd bring up an issue and you'd tell them about what's going on and they would say, well, that's only some cops that's only this, and that's not Berkeley cops, but it is Berkeley cops, you know, we've all seen it happen. And it was just, we gave them way too much liberty in that. We gave them way too much opportunity to fess up for what they did, and it's not right. I mean, you don't have to cut, but when you cut, you just know that you cut and that nobody else has made you cut. It's your own personal decision. It's your own reason why for cutting. First, a game. A is for angel, B is for blue, C is for candy, D is for devil. Can you keep going? Because the longer you take, the redder the rash, then the deeper the slash. It's this game you play in school, on the schoolyard, in middle school, like Mercy or Bloody Knuckles. I first heard of it in seventh grade, the worst year of my life. My friends all changed, all started to dye their hair. It was now cool to shop at thrift stores, wearing billions of bracelets from Hot Topic. If one person did something, everyone was gonna do it. In middle school, that was your job, to follow the trends. You were just in waiting, following trends, waiting to go to high school, where things would matter. So one day, this guy came up to me in my history class, 
some annoying guy who had always bugged me. I remember him because he had weird teeth, but maybe I'm just critical of people. He had a scar on his hand he was showing off, although it was stupid because he wasn't cool. Where'd you get that? I asked. And he was like, stick out your hand. I said no. Come on, it'll be fun. That's okay, I said. But then the guy next to me volunteered. Without explanation, that annoying guy took the other guy's hand and started scratching it. Think of something starting with A, he said as he scratched. We have to get to Z. I'm going to keep scratching until you do. Then the teacher started class breaking it up. But after that, I started to see more and more of the red welts, the crusted blood of cuts, and the almost healed over scars on different kids' hands. I never did it. I remember once I'd rubbed my hand too hard trying to get off some Sharpie, and someone came up and said, Oh, you're playing that game? It almost looked like she didn't believe me when I said I hadn't. Finally, the principal made an announcement over his loudspeaker. There is a game that's been going around. You know which game I'm talking about. This is not a safe game and needs to stop. Something like that. And then he concluded with his regular slogan. Make it a great day or not, the choice is yours. What, what struck me the most about this piece is the writing and just how smart and how much rhythm you have when you write. So I just want everyone to think about the writing as we listen to the end of this piece, which is track three. You've probably heard of cutting or seen some character who cuts on TV, but I want you to really think about it. Now pay attention. Are you? Really? I want you to hold your arm out in front of you, palm up right now. Pull up your sleeve until you can see your bare forearm. Is it there? Now imagine taking a razor and pulling it across your skin until you see a bleed. Could you do it? Could you push yourself past your instincts of not harming yourself and actually cut into yourself? One in every 10 teens cuts. And not only cutting on their arms, but legs, stomach, anywhere on their body. From where I stand at lunch, surveying the mostly white, mostly rich crowd, I'll notice at least four or five cutters. Whether you started out for the trend, the need for the rush when you see the line of blood trickle down, or the want of someone to see your pain, it doesn't matter once it becomes tradition, an addiction. I heard again and again about the compulsion, the craving for it once it got to be a habit. How did you feel emotionally before or after you cut? Um, most of the time I'd cut when I was really mad. Other times it would just be I needed to feel something or anything. And afterward you just feel really relieved. What kind of sense of relief? The kind of relief that you get when you know that there's absolutely nothing anyone can do to reach you anymore. I have a couple more Voice of Youth pieces, and then we'll open it up. So just save your comments. I know you all have lots you want lots of feedback that you want to give, but we have lots of audio that we want to play. Um, the next piece is called uh, Fight at... Is it Fight at Bathroom at Break? This is Tatiana Harrison of Voice of Youth. Right. Uh, it's called uh, The Bathroom at Break. The Bathroom at Break. And we're going to listen to just the beginning of it, and then Tatiana will explain to you actually what's going on in this piece. Um, no. Um, thanks. <laughs> Track four, please. So this story happened one day when I was cutting class, like I used to do all the time. 
Those were the good old days when we'd always cut. We'd get dropped off at school, get in a homeboy's car, go to a homegirl's house and sleep till we woke up like 10, 11 o'clock. Then we go out to breakfast at Burger King or IHOP for a big plate of pancakes, eggs, hash browns, and a Coke, paying with money we had from working a little bit or from boxing someone and coming up on their wallet along with maybe a watch or a chain. After eating, we show up at school, find out where the kickback was going to be, who was going to box who, if there was any problems. So when I first heard this piece, I didn't have the introductory uh, introduction for it, and I actually thought this was a woman boxer, <laughs> but that's actually not the case. So can you just set this up for us, Tatiana? Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, oh, sorry. Um, it was just... Oops. I was uh, sitting around with a kid, and he said that... Um, and it was a him, and uh, he said, yeah, I was, I was in this really weird fight, and he told me the story of it, and then he didn't want to... Because it was a gang fight, so he didn't really want to talk about it. And plus, I think it was more that he didn't really like want to talk in such kind of deep emotional terms because he doesn't think of himself as being like that. So he was like, okay, well, I'll write the story, but you have to have someone else voice it. And um, a big problem that we were having is when you talk about fights, it's really hard to not just glorify it. So um, partly because we didn't have anyone else around to read it, but mostly because we thought it would be deeply profound <laughs> to have a woman read it. Um, we had a woman named LaCoya read it. And I think it's really interesting because it really kind of distances you in sort of a Brechtian way or something, I think, from, like, what the story really is. So you can't get caught up so much in the emotion and you get stuck more in kind of the surrealness of the situation. But um, we're going to listen to this now. This is Now We Know. It's LaCoya Simmons. And this is a radio meets drama, yet it's nonfiction. So the next track, please. So anyway, back to my story. One day, I was cutting class. I stopped in at school and ended up walking a girl to somewhere she needed to be. We were walking and talking, and I saw this one huge fool, Miguel, walking my way. And the girl said to me, don't say anything. Don't even look at him. Don't say anything. But he's from where he's from. I'm from where I'm from. And in our situation, it's awkward when you walk up to each other one-on-one. Like, you might say what's up in a group, but one-on-one? It's like a test to see how down you are. And this fool was big. Compared to me, he was huge. So my heart starts beating hella fast. My hands were getting sweaty as he got closer, and I checked his hands to see if he was making fists, if he wanted to do it right then, but he was smart. He didn't want to get caught up right there. So we were just mad-dogging each other as we got closer. And when we got real close, I said, What are you looking at? And he said, What's up? and disrespected me in a real calm tone, knowing that's all he needed to do. It was going to happen eventually. That's why I said, what's up first, to get it over with. The girl I was with was now in the middle of us. We were so close that the girl and I were chest to chest. She was saying, don't do it, don't do it. What are you doing? You're going to get expelled. I tried to get her to move out of the way by pushing her. Then I told him, let's throw down. He said, okay, in the bathroom at break. The girl stayed with me, telling me, You're an idiot. You should have just kept your mouth shut. Don't do it. Don't do it. Just tell him you don't want to box no more. That's not going to happen, I said. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I took her to where she needed to go, opened the door for her, and I walked away. Walking over to the bathroom, I felt cold. I was trying to calm myself and figuring out the fight in my head already. From being so cold, I started to shake. 
Right before getting into the bathroom, I saw there was a guy waiting in front of it. He was quiet, had a low voice, and acted cautious. He said that Miguel was already inside. So I pulled open the bathroom door, and he was there already waiting. He was hopping side to side, shaking his hands. He looked up and saw me. His eyes blazed, and he stopped. So we waited a minute to get ready. We tied our shoes, took off our watches, took everything out of our pockets. I took off my chain, and we put it all together in one of the sinks. We took off our shirts, and I pulled up my pants, because my belt had gotten taken away earlier. And for a second, we were just looking at each other. Then he came at me, landing the first hit. I really didn't feel anything until later. At the moment, it was happening fast. I was blocking more hits at first. Then I thought to myself, I can take this fool right here. So I started to punch back and the first hit I landed was right in one of his eyes. He had no chance to block it because I threw it with my left hand and that was the last thing he expected. Then I hit him with my right, but that didn't do a lot because somehow he got a hold of me and threw me across the bathroom. He was right behind me with his forearm in the back of my neck. He was trying to put my face into the wall, but he couldn't phase me, so he threw me to the side. I knew he was getting tired because he wasn't right behind me this time. He walked up to me, threw a punch and missed because I ducked, and then I pushed him back. Then he tried to rush me, but I moved a little to the side and threw him into the wall. Then I knew I had him because it left him with a big-ass cut that was bleeding hella. But he came at me again, and he cut my lip open there was a lot of blood. We kept on going for as long as we could. Punch for punch, it was a dead tie between us. We just got tired. You would too if you boxed for 10 minutes. We ended up in each other's arms, just trying to hold each other up, just trying to keep each other from throwing more blows, bleeding and breathing hard. So while we're holding each other, he says, we're done. So we let go and back up. We shake each other's hands. Then I asked, are we cool? And he said, yeah, we're cool. We cleaned up as much as we could, got our stuff, and we're gone. But there was a teacher at the door, and he saw all the blood. So we got caught up, locked up, put on probation. He got expelled. His girl was already seven months. Such an amazing piece, Tatiana. Um, and he also got expelled from school? Was it related to that? Uh, eventually he got expelled. <laughs> was it related to fighting or? Um, yeah, it was a fighting related thing, yeah. He, told, he had so many stories and fights are just daily, so. Could you talk a little bit about um, what it was like to have someone else tell his story and how you guys set that up? 
I think the most interesting thing was that we had, we tried having another guy uh, read it, Sean, uh, who is Caucasian, white, and it sounded so ridiculous. Like, I couldn't tell who it sounded like we were making fun of, like the kid in the story or Sean or what, and it was so, and then LaCoya read it, and I guess because her voice sounds more kind of street or whatever you term you want to put, urban or whatever, and so it was weird to me that like that trumps gender in a way of sounding like appropriate and realistic. So, um, he, and he felt, I think that the thing to him is just, it was just his story. Like it was just something that happened one day in his life. Like why would anyone be interested in that? And, and the, he wrote it. This is what's so interesting to me is he wrote it. Did he write it as a radio piece? Cause it definitely has the rhythm of a radio piece. No, he was uh, basically doing community service for, because he was on probation. So he was kind of stuck in my studio for I don't know, 80 hours or something. And I was like, forget you know, filing, just write a story about a fight. And so he would write and type and then I would walk away and then I would come back and say, fill in this detail. And, and then he would fill in that detail and then I would ask him to like fill in another detail. So um, no, he just, I think he just had, it's such a natural story arc. I mean, I think a fight is like the ultimate story. It's like instigating action, escalation of conflict, climax, resolution. <laughs> so it's, it's just a natural way that he had of talking about things. And you guys work, do you work with a lot of um, young people that are involved in gangs or fighting, or is that? I think it's, a, it's like, um, I don't know, in the sense of like if you're an editor at NPR, you work you know, with like the Asia correspondence and you know, the um, South America correspondence. It's like a whole country into itself. So it is a lot of the kids, but a lot of the kids in our area have you know, never seen fights ever. I'd never seen a fight until a year ago, which was surprising to all the kids. Because <laughs> the, the next story we're actually going to hear is also from Voice of Youth. And this, this story, uh, I haven't ever heard anything like this. And uh, basically, a f uh, which, which school was it that you went to? Uh, it's called Roseland University Prep. It's a charter school in uh, an uh, at-risk area. So Tatiana went to the school and met uh, a young man, Luis, where is he? Over there. <laughs> who, uh, who wasn't doing very well, and she asked him why, and he explained that one of his friends had died and was killed in gang violence. And after that, they had a series of conversations. Luis brought in three other friends of this young man, um, Rogelio Bautista, and he was 16. And these four people, instead of doing, you know, what they set out to do originally, which was a story about what happened, decided that they would instead do a piece of what would Rogelio say. And so this is a very complicated thing to... When, when, all, when all of them and Rogelio's family have different ideas about who is this person... Is he a brother? Is he a son? Is he a gang member? Would he want revenge? Would he want peace? And we're going to hear a clip of this, and then we're going to also speak with Elvia Bautista, who is the sister of Rogelio, who's on the panel. Um, so track six, please. And there's four, can I just say that there's the four voices are speaking it, but they're speaking as if they are him speaking. And we'll probably only hear, I think, two or three of the voices in this clip. Okay, thank you.
That's one image, one moment, frozen. But what about the other images, the other me's? The me born in a small, dusty town in Michoacan, crossing the border as just a little kid. The me playing in that abandoned field in Olive Street, helping Junior talk himself out of gangs. The me who was a brother just so happy when my other brothers were at home. The me, quien era tan gran fanático del equipo América. The me that ends up that outline spray painted on concrete for moms to roll over with their baby strollers. A life, it can't just be an outline, a color, or a number, can it? At what point, at what moment did I become that outline? When did the panting, yelling kid knocking tennis balls into a weedy, muddy outfield become an outline surrounded by police tape, neighbors, cops, flashing lights? The moment I crossed the border, playing dominoes with Juan in that crowded apartment, calling out in Spanish on the school bus, the first time I beat someone up, the second my homie slammed his fist into my face. Through these fields of destruction Si trabajamos juntos, buscando una vida diferente, la realidad puede ser distinta, says the priest. Our reality could be different, but could this story have been any different? Can you honestly say you would have wanted something better for me? Could you have imagined something better? And if you did, what are you going to do with your tears or anger now? Carmen, Enrique, Cesar, Juan, what are they going to do? What do you honestly expect them to do? Like my primito Juan, five feet tall, standing as my body moved past, round brown eyes, staring as I'm followed by a stream of black. My little cousin, once so glad to have someone to play with, he sees a casket where there once was a kid, and among loving memories and anger and sadness and questions, he's thinking of that saying we all seem to have been told, tu vida Es prestada, nunca fue tuya. Life is borrowed. It was never really my life to begin with. Let me bid you farewell. Every man has to die. But it's written in the amazing about this piece is how through not only through what happened to Rogelio but through the luck of Tatiana being at the school and meeting Luis and then these friends of Rogelio putting together this it's a 20 minute long piece that stretches from you know the start of his life crossing is it the border from Mexico crossing the border from Mexico, you know, until the moment that he died. And I just want to tell you a little bit about what happened with Elvia, and then Tatiana will talk uh, a little bit more about the piece. But Elvia was also just at the school to put flowers 
um, that, you know, there was like a picture up of her brother, a memorial, and she went to bring flowers and heard that, oh, well, there's going to be something on the radio. And she thought, you know, this is going to be like another one of those young boy dies in gang fight news headlines. And she heard this piece, and it was through that that she then got in touch with uh, Tatiana and is now making her own radio stories. So this piece of radio has really opened up worlds and, you know, is one way that something really tragic has brought people together to remember, to share, to learn, to grow together. So Tatiana, do you want to tell us a little bit more about this process of, you know, it's a huge burden to decide to tell the life story in the words of someone who you've never met. What was that like for you to have that kind of responsibility? Um, I think, first of all, it's not something that you can just jump in and out of. I think I spent probably a month almost solid, right, Luis, with like every like every evening and afternoon um, talking with the four kids. We would just talk, come up, a lot of the details in the story, which I hope a lot of you will listen to the whole thing because I think it's really, uh, in a way, the beginning that's um, really important. A lot of the details would just come up in conversation. Someone would mention that, that hey, oh, like to eat cheese nips or someone mentioned that, oh, yeah, we love to play baseball in this muddy outfield. And what came up to me was that so many people can't relate at all to the gang thing, but everyone has parents, grew up, played games with their cousins, went to school, had that first day of school of, you know, what's it going to be like at school, in middle school, but in your school probably it wasn't like someone walks up to you and says, okay, if you're going to be with us, you sit over here and you've got to put in work, and if you're going to be with them, you sit over there and you've got to put in, you know, and we're going to get you. It's just, but everyone can relate to some aspects of it, so we would deal with that, and I think the other thing that came up a lot was that many people from the outside of this world were saying, well, well, he, you know, he chose that life. And I kept hearing that, like he chose that life, and not like he deserved it, but he kind of got what was coming to him, you know, he, he chose to be a gang member, so this is what it was, and, um, and the story is kind of an exploration of how much can you think of the word choice, I mean, how much is it a, a choice, a conscious choice, the same way other kids make choices about fashion or whatever. And, um, Olivia, when you heard this story that was so different than what you were expecting, did, did they accomplish what they set out to do? Did it sound like your brother to you? The thing that I thought about it was, like, like my first impression, like, when I heard that they were going to be talking about him, I was like, yeah, it's the same as the newspaper. The news, they just quoted as another gang member. Like, there's nothing wrong that happens every time, so it wasn't nothing new there in, um, in Santa Rosa. So um, when I heard the story, it was like they talked about how we crossed the border. I remember that, how we lived in the yellow apartment. So it was like memories that I, I, I like, related to. Like, I knew it happened, so it was like having, like, I have all those memories, but I don't talk, like, sit to myself and say, oh, like, I remember myself, but then hearing other people talking about him, it's like, it's, it's like you're still keeping him alive. And, like, we all did that when he passed away. Like, all his friends, like, we all heard a different part of him. Like, everyone knew him a certain other way. Like, I knew him as my brother, as when he was there with my mom, with my daughter, like, how he acted. But then he was a different person with his friends, with his homeboys, and different person with his girlfriend. So it was kind of like bringing his whole 
life together into one. Did you feel like all those parts of him came through? Yeah, it was, uh, it was like saying, um, like I could relate to more, like a lot of the stuff that they talked about, but then on the part where there's a part where he says, is that what I want? It's that like, it's just how they talk about if that's what he wanted. Like I think like maybe he did think about that. Maybe he did, or like a, like a, a way for us to think about maybe he doesn't want revenge. Maybe he does want something else for us to do to keep him alive. Or I don't know. It's just. And was it also for you know different people who heard it who maybe didn't know different sides of him? Was it sort of like a? It was. Um, I like I could. Um, I was happy that they were talking about him. I'm like, we all, like, try to do it a different way. Like, say, his homeboys put a CD together for him, like a memory of him. And um, and the kids that knew him from when he got there, like, when we got from Mexico when he was a teenager, like, knew him that way. So it was, like, a sweet kind of way. But then um, it was just, like, we all had a different memory of him. And some of them, like... Coming from that point of gang violence, it's like you have to go through a thin line. You can't talk about certain things. So it's kind of hard for them to talk, like, have everything out. So there's certain th stuff that you... You said that the whole, like, breaking the silence thing, you know, like your mom didn't want the story to be done. My mom was, like, more... Like, say, my whole family right now is, like, more like, leave him, like, just let him rest. Don't talk about him. Like, we could be... It's already been like nine months that he passed away. I'm like we sit on, like we'll be eating and we'll be just looking at each other. We can't even bring the subject up. Like it's like when I'm like at my house, it's like he is dead. Like the whole picture is like he is dead. No one is talking about him. And um, when I hear other people talking about him, it's like he is alive somewhere, like around us. But then when I'm in like my family, he is dead. Um, I'm going to open this panel up for, and then we'll open it up to the audience, but first for you guys to respond or give feedback or ask questions about this piece or any of the pieces that we've heard so far. Do you guys have any questions or? A question for you. I know you've probably heard that piece a bunch of times, just like putting it together and listening to it. So is it different for you every time you hear it or do you kind of have the same thought? Well, I didn't uh, have any to, anything to do with the piece because, like, the ki they did it before. I'm like, I didn't even know the Diana back then. It was like I heard, I heard the piece, the like I heard the story all together, and my first reaction was like, it got to me, and I was like, I want a copy of it. There's something like I have a memory of him that I could listen to him like every time I want to listen to him. So I called her that same night, like after she says, like the story was done and she goes, if anyone wants a copy, and she gave her phone number. So then I called her and I was like, I like the story and I would really like a copy. And um, so that's how we kind of, I kind of got involved with um, the whole issue. Of and, and now you're making radio and also potentially working with Jay Allison on a piece about how your family is dealing with your brother's death? Yeah, it's mostly, the thing that I see it as is like, I'm just out there sharing what happened. Like a lot of people, like I've been to a school where um, gang members are like 
they get like for probation, probation puts them in a class where they supposed to talk about the gang issue. And I went and talked there. The only thing I had to say was like what we went through, like share my experience with that tragedy. And maybe it will like help them to analyze what's going on. And that could happen to any, like say if the, this class, this whole room was like them, it would like help them to say, it's not that it was just my brother. This could happen to anyone who's living that lifestyle. It's just. The bag that you brought. And then um, I just, it's, it's interesting because the only things that I have of him right now, it's like memories that I have, memories that anyone who knew him has. That, um, and then just like I have this little bag of um, the items he was carrying when he was shot. A lighter, a $5 bill, a earring, and um, a watch. Those are the only things that I have like of him that he had. And um, that's like the, I'm like, you're going to pressure. It's like me trying to put everything together and have him to keep him alive with me. And you showed that he, she showed them to the class, which, um, and it was sort of like, I think, a moment where no matter what color you were, I mean, you have stuff in your pockets, and if you get shot right now, you know, this is what your family is going to keep and cherish forever. And I think it broke through a bit of a barrier for them. Yeah. <laughs> do, do people in the audience have some? Go ahead. Um, I have CD copies, I'll sell you. <laughs> this one on? And also... Uh, I do have CD copies and then on the KRCB website, but I can give you that info. And also a lot of the youth work is on PRX. Yeah, it's on PRX. Yeah, so Generation PRX. We're going to hear at the end of today's session and also tomorrow some more of the work from PRX, but it's been a great way for you guys to go and put your work out there for other people to listen to it, to review it and get feedback on it. Um, so that's prx.org, right? And then they just click on the Generation PRX link on the right-hand side. Yeah, there's, there's a lot from most of the youth radio, youth radio groups. This piece is called Our Name is Rogelio Bautista. Rocky, go ahead. Yeah, I, um, I just want to say, I think I told you before, but the reason this piece is so... I didn't say it's not a, the reason this piece is so good is because it talks about stuff that you usually don't hear about. Like you hear in newspapers, kid shot on this corner, gang member, period. That's it. That's all you hear. Mm -hmm. So automatically with that, you think of negative stuff. And so in this case, you have that, but then you have a whole life story behind that person. Like unfortunately, in some neighborhoods, the only way you can survive is by joining a gang or the only way you can get down but with that with your brother there's a whole story behind them there's different characteristics that people know about him some people remember him for being a great friend you remember him as being a loving brother so it's just so nice to see that he actually was a nice person he actually was somebody who cared about other people and he wasn't just another kid shot he has a life story behind it. That was mostly what, like, we all, like, we, heard, like, saw the newspapers, and it was, like, that was the quote. The kid shot. That's it. And that was, like, us. It was, like, it wasn't just the gang member killed. It was, uh, it was my brother. It was my mom's son. It was just, like, I'm, like, we don't see it as a gang member. That might have been one part of his life, but then he still has this whole part of everyone's life. We all have a certain part of our life for that 
we chose to have it, but then that doesn't have to be all of your life. And, and also, again, this idea of silence and the things that, you know, whether you don't talk about them because you're scared that if you talk about the police, you're going to get targeted, or if you talk about your brother that the gang is going to come after you because you're not supposed to talk about the gang, and the courage for all the people involved to tell these stories and break through the silence is just very, very impressive. All right, so for the music, that was mostly Katie and Tatiana that put it all together. You made some of the beats for it. For the Rogelio story, I made is Katie some here? beats on there. Katie right is there. Um, the editor? Yeah. Editor. Katie Stoll? Stolman. Stolman. Stolman, producer, <laughs> editor. Everything. <laughs> so I made a couple of beats for... They weren't like really for the story, but like we all put them in because it sounded good to it too. And like, you know, like when the priest was talking and all that, Tatiana went to the the church open and casket. open casket and she recorded it. And then all the other songs on that one were Tatiana's and Katie's idea. I like the music. I like. Like, all the music that was put in there, it, I thought it went great with the story. Because after they were done putting the music in, I just went and listened to it when it was done. So, I, I thought it sounded good, too. Um, four, other, four of you? There was four of us. And His. did you, was it you who brought them in? Or Tatiana, did you ask him to bring in specific people? So you chose these three people, and why did you choose them? Because out of everybody at that school, like, they knew Rogelio, and David was his cousin. He knew about practically everything. Julio knew him from the muddy outfield playing baseball. I knew him since we were young. We used to play basketball when we were small. And were like, the four of you guys friends? I mean, were these... Friends no. who you were, if let's say there was no radio story, you would be talking with them about Rogelio anyway? Yeah, because we were like all there when we were reading the newspaper. Like me and Julio were friends and David and Maria. Like all four of us were friends. But like when it all came together to the Rogelio story, when I asked them to come in, it was like, we just all came together like more and more and more. I would say I was kind of like the court reporter to them in the sense that they would be talking and I type really fast. So they would say phrases and, and I would type it together and I would type together. And then, because um, I feel like it's very just phrases off the cuff, kind of not the way if you sat down to write it, you would write it. Um, so it was oral sort of history in a sense that I was um, transcribing and then we had a whole bunch of stuff, like just lines that would say, like, he liked to eat cheese nips or uh, la vida es prestada. And then it'd be like, okay, so where does this go in the story? And then it was pieced together a little bit like you would a, a collage or something. We just, like, read the whole thing. Like, each one of us read it, the script, and then we chose what parts we, like, wanted to do at the end at the station. 
Um, well, this story took me like six or seven months to actually write. Um, I went through about a million pages of research on it and talked to a bunch of people and thought about it and spent many, many hours talking to Tatiana and <laughs> trying to figure out this issue that, um, and it's like the like original thing I came up with was like, why are people doing this? Why has it become a fad? But throughout the story, it's like, why is this like weird to the rest of society? Like, why not to do it? So when I started interviewing people and I asked her, like, so I looked through all the research, right, and saw that um, doctors were talking about, like, why not to do it? Like, you might hit a vein or something. And just stupid stuff that didn't really matter. And <laughs> it was. So when I talked to people who, um, who had done it, the only way I was going to figure out, like, why they did it or why it was important to them was to start asking questions and figure out, like, if it gives them relief, well, like, why can you only get that type of relief from doing this? So. It's really great work. Thank you, guys. So we are next going to hear from Bly Loritano Werner over there. And this, this piece is called Two Cafeterias. And we're just going to hear... Um, an excerpt from it, and uh, when you hear her talking about calves in the story, she's talking about cafeterias. So this is track seven, please. I'm a junior at Portland High School. Portland High is known for its great diversity. Because the school is so large, it has two cafeterias to seat its students and the option of going out to eat. However, when one surveys the two calves, they notice that there is a different predominant race in each. Some even go as far as to say that they're segregated. I decided to interview classmates and staff in both cafeterias to find out what they think. I interviewed students in both the upper and lower calves. I first asked them why they eat where they do. They all seem to have the same answer. Um, I eat here because all my friends eat here. And the other calf, it's, I don't know anyone there, so I just eat here. I asked the students if they had ever ventured into the other calf. The majority of the students told me they hadn't, so I asked them what the big deal was and what they think might happen if they did. Uh, it would probably be pretty awkward because <laughs> we'd probably be the only white people up there. I think everyone would look at me because usually the same people go to the calf that they usually go to. And so if I went to the other calf, I think it'd be really awkward. Um, I don't think anything would happen. I just don't feel comfortable there. I just feel like if I went, they'd just all talk about us in their own language. Next, I asked the students to describe the students in the other calf. Um, they're more ethnic than people in the lower calf. A lot of ethnicity. Well, it's pretty obvious that most of the white upper class kids sit in the lower calf and the more diverse kids in the upper calf definitely. I think of them as regular students. I mean I look around here and there's maybe two people including myself that are from that have ethnic backgrounds and everyone here is just American. <laughs> It's very interesting hearing how people talk about race <laughs> or not talk about it. <laughs> I, personally, I, I, 
Yeah, I thought it was so honest, and I guess it was equal in both sides, discomfort of how to speak about it, but it never felt rude to me, actually. I think I more felt like people felt uncomfortable to use a term, so instead they used really weird terms like ethnic and American. <laughs> yeah. But, Bly, do you want to... Go ahead. So we're going to hear from, from the author. Um, I thought that I didn't really want to get involved because I just wanted the two sides to try and play each other out. Um, I wasn't like approving of whatever they were saying. I just wanted to leave it as um, a reporting job, not a commentary. Um, and also I go to the school and <laughs> my <laughs> teachers were listening, but um, yeah. What? I go out to lunch usually, <laughs> but <laughs> see, not taking a side. But um, uh, when I do eat in the calf, I usually eat in the lower calf, and so it was kind of interesting going into the other calf and um, seeing, like, meeting people and talking to people, because I usually eat with the people I have classes with, and so it was, I learned a lot, and I did more interviewing later for different pieces like that. Uh, the next piece we're going to hear is by Emily LaFond, uh, who's been about, with Blunt for about a year. Yeah, And Emily likes to do commentary. So do you want to just talk specifically about this one and why you chose to do this one? Oh, <laughs> and it's been a question of Hiroshima versus Hiroshima. <laughs> and Karen uh, Michelle explained to me that when you say Hiroshima, it means island of hero. And when you say Hiroshima, it just means Hiroshima. And you can call the place both names, uh, but when Japanese people are saying Hiroshima, they're saying it with a very sort of specific meaning to call it the island of hero. So it's a little lesson for us all. <laughs> okay, well, we had a show on nuclear disarmament, and I would I was a reporter for, and I decided to do a commentary for it, and I write a lot of commentaries, sort of starting with the idea that I could interview someone and get their opinion, or I could write a commentary and get my own. So I usually start off thinking that, you know, my opinion is no less valuable than anyone that I could interview, and I put together the piece, and then by the time it's produced, I kind of end up second-guessing it and thinking, you know, it's kind of bland and commentaries aren't as produced, I guess, as other pieces. And so I end up doubting them a lot and kind of thinking like a commentary is the first level, I guess, of making a piece. And when you're a beginner, you make commentaries. And then maybe when you get better, you can produce a piece. So I kind of think of them as, or the ones that I do as, like, I kind of get the reaction, oh, you know, that's good, but maybe next time you can try interviewing someone. So kind of like I'm still a beginner because I'm writing. So, so let's listen to it, and then we'll come back to talking about that. It's track eight, please. 1945, the invention of the nuclear bomb. According to the Center for Defense Information, 60 years later, there are now over 36,000 nuclear weapons worldwide. Almost 11,000 of these are in our own country. The number of nuclear bombs ever used? Two. On the morning of August 6, 1945, a bright flash of light incinerated Hiroshima, Japan, and thousands of leaflets fluttered to the earth bearing this message. We are in possession of the most destructive explosive ever devised by man, 
A single one of our newly developed atomic bombs is actually the equivalent in explosive power to what 2,000 of our giant B-29s can carry on a single mission. This awful fact is one for you to ponder, and we solemnly assure you, it is grimly accurate. At the time, few had ever heard of the bomb, let alone the devastation it was capable of causing. World War II had previously echoed with the crack of machine guns and the threatening clamor of conventional weapons. But on August 6, 1945, at 8.15 a.m., President Truman took a chance with silence. The silent explosion pulsed through the streets of the busy Japanese town of Hiroshima. The brilliant light given off by the splitting atoms froze in the still air above the city, while its citizens dove for cover from the United States' cruel and unforgiving decision. The devastation caused by the bomb was unmatched by any destruction the war had caused so far. Over 50,000 civilians died moments after the bomb went off, and within five years an additional 150,000 died from the lingering effects of radiation. The number of people stricken with radiation sickness was staggering. According to the records of the Nagasaki atomic bombing, 94.1% of people within a kilometer of the bomb died with no apparent external injuries. An additional 100,000 people in Hiroshima were killed not by the impact of the bomb, but by the long-lasting effects of radiation. The United States claimed that a million American lives were saved from the bombing, that if we were forced to invade Japan instead of forcing them to surrender, the result would be the death of hundreds of thousands of our own people. Was it justified? Can we put a price on human lives? Does the potential and theoretical saving of American lives excuse the death of such an enormous number of Japanese citizens? Currently, the United States has killed over 100,000 Iraqi citizens under the guise of protecting American lives. Every day, thousands of Iraqi teenagers rise to the same sun we woke to just a few short hours before. They leave their homes and apartment buildings, say goodbye to their families, and prepare themselves for another day of school. Backpacks slung over one shoulder, they joke with their friends and file into their classrooms. The large, bright rooms vary only slightly from those in our own country, yet somehow the teenagers learning inside of them are worth less than those who attend an almost identical school in the United States. These lives are the ones we are sacrificing today to save our own. What a price to pay. For Blunt Youth Radio, this is Emily LaFond. When she writes her commentary, she likes it. But then when she hears it in the show next to, like, you know, more produced pieces, that she then feels like she's taken an easy way out and thinks that uh, maybe her opinion isn't valued as much as if she was doing a story and interviewed somebody else. So I thought we can all actually talk about, you know, developing both your confidence as you're learning to make radio. I mean, you said that when you start at Blunt, that they say phase, for, you know, part one is you write a commentary. Like, that's the easy, simple thing. And then as you get better, you do this, like, more complicated piece with sound. But, you know, there are people whose full-time career is to write commentary. So do, do other of you guys struggle with that, with wanting to write commentaries but feeling like it's not as respected or appreciated? Um, I don't 
have a fear of the next step. I, I produce features. No, I haven't. doesn't like you don't like it as much, right? Um, I think I prefer writing commentaries, and I think that kind of how it's. Oh no, it's it's okay. I do. I just think that it's you know the the next step is often looked at as if you're a better producer, you can take that step, kind of like you're what you're talking about the second stage. So, oh no, yeah, I do. I just um, I like interviewing people. I just think it's kind of good to get your own opinion as well, just because I like at our, you know, it's not as heard as you know other people going out and getting the opinions of others before they think to voice their own. And I think it's like, it's an area of, you know, where people do differ, especially because a lot of youth media is first person and from your perspective. And, and, you know, if you were an adult producer, you wouldn't have necessarily as many liberties. Like if you listen to NPR, you don't hear as many, you know, NPR producers talking from their own personal experiences or their own personal perspectives so it's a good it's a good discussion um well for me it was kind of a solemn subject and so I didn't really want to add anything that would make it seem not happier but you know like more upbeat than it was and also I didn't really want it to have any frills and be you know I kind of just wanted it to you know it was my statement and so I didn't really want things that could or conflict with that. And, and that's what I was saying to you last night, because Emily was feeling, well, can I just talk about this? That, that, you know, she was nervous about her work being out there, and is it on the same par as this other work? And I, I explained to her that some stories need to be told in a very simple fashion without lots of elements, and that's the most powerful way to tell that story. And I think that you picked very smartly on this one to know that this is the kind of piece that doesn't need those elements, and that, in fact, the way to do the subject the most justice is to keep it really simple the way that you did. I know people have more questions, but we have two more clips that we want to play, so we'll play them and then... If we have more time, we'll take more questions. Um, we're going to hear uh, two excerpts, both on the same subject. And Rocky, as many of you know, uh, did a story about his struggle with his weight about two years ago. And um, we're first going to hear a clip of his story. And then we're going to hear someone else who took the same subject but had decided to do it from a really different angle. So uh, track nine, please. So while at work, I decided I needed something that I can write and look at that would help me to defeat my biggest obstacle, which is buying candy and junk food. So I wrote down this thing, and I'm going to duct tape it on my wall, on my shelf. It says, what I am now and what I will be if I don't change. I'm fat, ugly, huge, sweaty, slob, monster. Big for nothing, no good. Food has my life, nothing to live for. And here's another sheet. Um, I wrote this to give me some sort of my hope to God goal. It says what I wish I could be. Skinny, cute, loved by everyone, accepted everywhere, high self-esteem, high confidence, more friends, comfortable, cool, happy about me, no more self-shame, love me, love life. Love my body, abs, no, no flubber, 
no fat, no extra skin, no stretch marks. I actually feel proud while doing this. Makes me happy. What would it take for me to lose weight, do you think? I swear to God. Yes. Just sew your mouth together with a big needle, a threat. Hey, what happened to the loving mother? Go on the diet, Rocky. So tomorrow we're going to go on the Hollywood diet? Yes, Rocky. If you're willing to go, Rocky. I'm going to really try my hardest. Okay, my hardest? What's my hardest? My hardest. My best. My best. Okay. From a 1 to 10, how good do you think I'll do? If you put your mind to it, you do a 10. That's it. No, that's it. Just get on my face. You're the best. Okay, just get on my face. When you lose weight, I'll tell you the best. Hey, this is Rocky. I'm waiting for my food. It's about done. I guess I'm never going to be the best. Remember the sheet of words I put on my door? Well, my sister Sammy thought it was a joke. And she started laughing. Pretty soon, I thought it was a joke, too. And I took it down. Five, four, three, two, one. I was just messing up my shelf. It was another bullcrap thing that didn't work. It's a large amount of turkey with gravy and mashed So before we talk about that, we're going to listen to another piece, same subject. I found this piece on PRX. So again, we're telling people to go to PRX, and there's so much great youth work and other work on there. And this is by Jennifer Rowe from WAMU, which is based in Washington, D.C. And this piece, um, done after yours, is called Obesity. It's track number 10, please. It's 5.30 in the morning, and I'm at the gym, drowning in sweat. I have a lot of friends who could use an hour or two in this treadmill. So why am I the only one here? The thing is, like, I've been trying to go on a diet lately, seriously, but I can't do it. My friend Izzy has something in common with a lot of African-American girls in my gym class at school. I'm over 100 pounds overweight. No bull. I'm fat. Okay. Izzy's weight may be unusually high, but according to the American Obesity Association, 46% of black teenage girls are overweight or obese. That's compared to 30% of teenagers in general. But the thing is, they don't really seem to care. I actually have a shape, so (laughs) it's something I can work with. That's my friend Ashley. She calls it having a shape. Other people in my school describe it as being curvy or thick or even bootylicious. And then there's my friend Robert. She got a badonkadonk. Can you define badonkadonk for me? Donkadonk, you know. (sighs) You ever seen a marshmallow? Dr. Kathy Woodward is an adolescent medicine specialist at Children's National Medical Center. She says there's a reason African-American girls are this way. What was an evolutionary advantage in Africa to be able to take less calories, turn them into fat for storage, you were more likely to be able to survive, and certainly as a woman, more likely to be able to survive childbirth. She says today, as in years past, many black women are still ample. And that in itself is not a bad thing. I'm very proud that people have a positive self-image of themselves no matter what size they are. The problem, though, is health. It's no secret that being overweight raises your blood pressure, cholesterol levels, and your chances of getting diabetes. The problem is, when you're 16, you're not that concerned with the future. And getting in shape is not easy. I mean, you know how hard it is to say that way and being fit and healthy? I just like to eat candy and kick back, you know. Dr. Woodward understands my friend Valerie's sorrow. She used to think exercise was a pain, too. 
being a little fat kid in elementary school, the PE teacher was not the person I wanted to see all the time. We've got to figure out how do we change that so that exercise becomes a positive thing and not something that you go, oh, PE. She says the answer is to reintroduce the idea of play, especially for kids in fourth through ninth grade when it stops being cool to run around like maniacs on the playground. But team sports haven't kicked in yet. Still, that doesn't answer the question of what we, as teenage girls, are supposed to do with guys like Robert. Remember Mr. Badunkadunk? I interviewed Dr. Garth Graham at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where they've started a campaign to reduce obesity among African Americans. I decided to ask him, as a guy, what he thought. But, you know, when... A guy wants voluptuous curves and, <laughs> you know, a voluptuous body. Well, voluptuous is not bad, but health is the primary goal. Whichever man is attracted to us should be attracted to us, for we have an inside as well as the outside. Hear that, everybody? We got to make sure that these curves aren't stationary. Anyone up for a game attack? Sure beats this treadmill. For WMU's Youth Voices, I'm Jennifer Rowe. Rocky, I'm curious, what did you think of like hearing someone take a similar topic and deal with it so differently? I heard this before. Oh, you have? Yes, when I look up my name on Yahoo. <laughs> <laughs> there was a website about this. <laughs> Such an ego. <laughs> and so then I heard it, and I heard the beginning part of it, and I really liked it. It's really cool. It's, it's, it's nice. It's from a different perspective, but it's somebody who's active and probably not as big as me, but <laughs> it's, it's nice. Oh uh, yeah, when I was doing my story, well, I go to Edward Armour High School, it's a big school, 4,500 kids. Um, everybody knows me, I joke all the time with everybody, the teachers, I annoy them, the principal, I bother him. And so everybody knows me, but I never complain about my weight to anybody, so everybody would just see me every day, joke around with me, so when I did this story, they saw me with the microphone, but they didn't take me serious. They saw me like, oh, what are you doing? Story about my weight. Oh, okay, it's another joke. So then when they actually heard my story on the radio, I walked into school, and everybody was like, oh, I didn't know you felt that way about your weight. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and so then it was really, it was, it was unbelievable. Like, so many people cared. So many people, like, understood, like, my struggle my teachers came to me, took me out of class, told me, I heard you on the radio. I was driving, and I heard you, and I said, is this you on the radio? <laughs> and so it was, it, was, it was really nice. They all understood me, and they, now they look at me like, is this weight bothering? <laughs> but it's that same issue also of silence, because you said that you never could talk about your weight at home before. Right. Yeah, there was never any reason to talk about my weight. Like, it was just annoying or it was just boring. But with this, I, like, wanted to question it. Like, when I had this, I didn't come up with this as a first story idea. It came out of somewhere with this, and then I was like, wait, wait. Why does my mom say that about me? Why does my sister make fun of me? And then it was like, hey, I'm going to, and then I was going to, they all didn't want to give me interviews. It wasn't like, come interview me. Let me tell a bunch of jokes. It was 1 o'clock in the morning. My mom's like, put the damn recorder away. I'm like, no, not until you talk to me. And so that's where I got all the interviews from. And so I just kept the microphone running. My sister, I opened the door. I had to get this interview with her. She was doing her homework. 
I sat on her bed. I said, I swear I'm not moving until you give me a tooth. And that's where, that's where the beginning of the story came in, where get off, my bed is breaking, the wheels are popping off, get out. And so, so you really, like, when you want an interview, you can get it. Bye. <laughs> I, I hate to end this because I know we all want to keep talking, but I'm sure other people need to get into this room. Um, so first, I just want to tell everyone that tomorrow in the morning, we're doing the same panel, except we're going to have different groups, totally different sound. We're going to have Andy, Zenka, Curie, and Outloud. Uh, we're also going to play another excerpt of another Radio Rookies piece. I hope you guys will come. Also, Weekend America has a competition on for producers who've not had their work on nationally, and there is a flyer in this hallway. You can also see Lori Selleck, who's here. She's got her hand up over there. Enter your work. Let's get more of your guys' stuff on the radio nationally. Um, we hope to see you tomorrow, and I just want to thank all of you guys, and thank you guys especially. Your work is really inspirational. I think you're teaching us what we need to be doing. So congratulations.